This is Education Matters, brought to you by the Ohio Education Association. Welcome back for another edition of Education Matters. I'm Katie Olmsted, part of the communications team for the Ohio Education Association, and on behalf of the more than 120,000 K-12 teachers, education support professionals, and higher ed faculty members we represent, we're once again diving into the education issues impacting our state. One of the biggest ones right now, the budget. In early February, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine released his executive budget, laying out his spending plans for fiscal years 2022 and 2023. When it comes to the education side of things, DeWine's plan does call for things like expanding broadband access to help close the digital divide for students and for increased funding for wraparound services like mental health programs in schools. But the governor's plan does nothing to address the state's unconstitutional school funding formula. And that's a problem. But there is hope. Let's check in with economist Howard Fleeter, a consultant for the Ohio Education Policy Institute, to get a better understanding of this situation. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Fleeter. Let's start with the basics here. What is the deal with Ohio school funding formula and why do we need a new one now? That's a short question with a long answer. So right now, Ohio does not technically even have a school funding formula, right? For this is the FY21 school year. Last year was the FY20 school year. And for both of those years, the funding formula has been frozen supposedly at the FY19 levels. So just for people who are listening to understand, FY19 is the fiscal year 2019. So this school year, right? So this school year started, you know, in, in 2020, it ends in 21. So we call it the FY21 school year. Right. So for the last for this year and last year, we've not had a formula. Everybody, all the districts have been getting essentially the amount of money that they were given by the formula two years ago in 2019. But they haven't really been getting that much money because of the covid pandemic. So back in May of last year, the governor made a $300 million reduction in school funding, right? And so the legislature later replaced about $23 million of that. So there was like a $277 million reduction last school year. This year, they continued that reduction, okay? And then only, it was only, I think, three or four weeks, three weeks ago, that they reinstated $152 million of that reduction. So Funding for this year is $125 million less than 2019, and funding last year was $277 million less than the 2019. So a couple things going on. One, there's no formula with, you know, usually the formula will say if you have more students or less students or the different types of students or if your property values have changed, you know, that, that the formula gives, you know, it computes different amounts each year based on circumstances of districts. That hasn't happened. And districts have gotten less money um, because there were concerns about state tax revenues. Turns out those concerns bizarrely have not been nearly as bad as any of us thought, um, you know, 10 months ago when all this started and the bottom was falling out. So, um, but you, you can't go indefinitely and just say you're going to get money based on what you got a couple years ago, right? So that's the first problem. The second problem is that the formula we had in 2019 was not even a very good funding formula. Right, that's really the complicated part of, of your question. So to talk about that, you have to go back almost 24 years to March of 1997. 
that's when the Ohio Supreme Court delivered their first ruling in the DeRolf school funding case. So it's called the DeRolf case. The DeRolf was an actual person. His name was Nathan DeRolf. He was a student in Perry County and um, they, he was the named defendant in a suit which alleged that Ohio's funding formula was not constitutional. Why isn't it constitutional? Ohio, like every other state, has a clause in its constitution which makes some reference to providing you know, a thorough and efficient education or words along those lines. In, in Ohio, it's a system of common schools, right? And, and it's, you know, the understanding is it's, it's the state's responsibility to set up a school system with proper funding that will meet the needs of all the kids across the state. You know, we've got 610 school districts. That's a lot, um, even for a state our size, which is 11 million people. And that creates, you know, there's two concerns about the funding formula. You know, one is adequacy and one is equity. The equity issue is one, when you have 610 school districts, there's gonna be wealthier districts and there's gonna be poorer districts, right? Our system, I think most people have, you know, been in Ohio for more than a few minutes understand that we have property taxes um, that fund schools and a lot of school levies. And so the system starts with all 610 districts levy property taxes. They're free to go to their voters as often as they can get approval. So some districts have higher rates than other districts and some districts have more property wealth than other districts. So you can have two types of inequity. One, you're richer to begin with. Two, you're more successful with your voters getting more support. Those two things tend to go hand in hand. Wealthier people can better afford to pay taxes. So the wealthier districts tend to have higher rates a lot of times. Some of them are so wealthy they can get by with lower rates, right? But not, not very many of them. So there's equity issues. You've got some you know, districts' local ability to raise money is very different from place to place in, in this state. And um, you know, and then it's up to the state to kind of offset that. That's the equity issue. The adequacy issue is, well, how much do you, how much does the state offset it? You need some sort of objective standard that every kid's going to get, you know, a, a reasonably high quality education. And, and they all have different educational needs. It, it costs more to educate students with certain needs. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like you say, I mean, so your question just shows like, I mean, in concept, it's fairly simple to explain. In practice, it's difficult to recognize those needs, right? So, you know, adequacy means providing what different types of students need, you know, based on their circumstances. And those circumstances can vary. Um, you know, students from poverty research shows that they tend to need, you know, like an, on average, 30% more funding, even more in districts where there's very high concentrations of poverty. Clearly students with disabilities need more help. Um, you know, um, it, it costs a little bit more to educate um, gifted and talented students, um, English language learners, those kids, you know, get them to speak English before they can start understanding, you know, math and reading and, and the rest of the curriculum. Um, career technical education costs more. Transportation needs vary um, from place to place. You can't educate your kids until you get them to school, right? So, you know, kid, districts are different from each other and kids are different from each other. You and their know, ability to pay for this is different from each other, which exactly, is a huge exactly. problem. Exactly. So there you go. So that's, you know, half a dozen reasons right there why the school funding formula is going to get pretty complicated pretty quickly. But right? we don't even have one. Right. So, yeah, so we've taken a bad situation and right now it, it, you know, made it worse, right? Not having a formula is, is, you know, sometimes in the short run, things happen. You know, we didn't have a formula in the 2012 and 2013 school years. That was the first two years of John Kasich being governor. And that was immediately, I mean, there was no formula because the state, like, you know, Ohio, like 
everybody else in the country was recovering from the Great Recession and revenues dried up. And the first thing government, you know, Governor Kasich had to do was sort of put the state's finances back in structural balance. You know, everybody kind of understood, okay, for a couple of years, we got to hit the pause button. Right. And then um, we hit the pause button again in, two, you know, 2020 and 2021. And that was not more because we couldn't figure out what the funding formula should look like, not because we didn't have the money. Of course, then when the coronavirus hit, we also had the problem that we didn't have the money. But, you know, in, in the simplest terms, you know, the DeRolf decision said, you know, three things. One, that the state needed to provide some money to help schools build buildings for facilities. The other two things were, you know, the, the, the numbers in the formula need to be based on some measure of what it adequately takes to educate different kinds of kids, right? And the formula starts with, you know, what we call the base cost. Back in 1990, that was $2,530 per pupil. In 2019, it was $6,020 per pupil. So it's gone up substantially, okay? But the six, you know, but both those numbers had the same problem. One of the issues, the biggest issue in the, you know, for adequacy in the Duroff decision was that the numbers that were used in the formula were just kind of plucked out of thin air, right? They were based on the legislature saying, we're going to allocate X amount of money to schools. And then you work backwards based on how many students and what the property values are and the other parameters in the formula. And that will spit out, okay, $2,530 this year, $3,015 a few years later, right? They worked backwards and that became called residual budgeting. You were working from like, you know, that the per pupil amount was like a residual based on going backwards through the formula. And so that's not good enough. You need to figure out what does it cost? You know, that base cost amount should be, what does it cost to educate the typical kid in the typical place? Then you need to add things on top if the student is economically disadvantaged, if the student um, has disabilities, if the student is interested in career technical education, you know, if the student's an English language learner, you know, it, you, know you add those things in, then you add in, okay, now you need to adjust for transportation. Some districts, you know, rural districts, um, you know, are sparsely populated and geographically large. They put a lot more miles on their buses than suburban and urban districts do. You, you need to, you know, all the numbers in the formula need to be based on some reasonable estimation of the cost of doing this particular thing. And at the time of the draw-off decision, the numbers were just numbers. They, they were based on what the legislature, you know, decided. And some people say, well, isn't that what we elect legislators for? right? That's a fair question. The answer is yes, except you've got this clause that, you know, in the constitution that says it's up to, you know, that the, the state's responsible for constructing, you know, a, 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 you know, a system of common schools, right? And, the, and that that has to be, you know, thorough and efficient, adequate and equitable, you know, however you want to interpret that. So the DeRolf ruling it said you got to provide some help to local districts for facilities. It says that the numbers in the formula have to be based on adequacy. And the last thing it said was that Ohio's school funding formula was over-reliant on the local property tax. And it would have been really helpful if the court had been more specific with what they meant by that, because different people have interpreted different things. Some people meant, thought it meant our property taxes are too high. Um, to me, the most important word in that phrase was local. We're, we're over-reliant on local property taxes. That's the equity issue. The fact that we have rich places and poor places, right? The poor places don't have the ability to support themselves. The state really needs to offset that. So, you know, to me, this was very clearly 
a ruling about adequacy and equity. And so how do you construct a school funding formula that complies with that? Step one, you need to figure out what it costs to educate different kinds of kids. Okay. Step two, you need to figure out how you split the share of that cost between the state and the local school district in 610 places. You know, the first thing is the adequacy issue. The second thing is the equity issue. So you've got the, the parameters and the formula where those numbers come from. And then you've got your mechanism for determining who pays what. And so that's your funding formula. And the, the 2019 funding formula that we had was failing on both fronts. They're back to doing exactly what they did before the Duralf decision, which was just picking numbers. You know, 5,800, 5,900, 6,000, they're nice round numbers. They're not based on what it actually costs to educate a typical kid. So, you know, by, um, you know, 2019, there wasn't a single number in the formula that was based on a current cost calculation. And so I'm so, hearing a lot of the problems here and they are enormous problems. Yes. But the solution is there. Uh, there's a solution on the table, right. the fair school funding plan. It was introduced right. as House Bill 1 this legislative session. Right. What is that about and how did we get here? Right. So the fair school funding plan came from a group put together by two legislators, one Republican and one Democrat. The Republican was um, State Representative Bob Cup, And who's the, now the Speaker of the House. He's now the Speaker of the House. He used to be he was he used to be in the Ohio Senate. He was one of the first people I met back in the early 1990s when I started working on this. And then he was on the state Supreme Court after the DeRolf decision. He was not part of that, but he was on the Supreme Court. He has a lot of experience in school funding. He's got experience on the court, right? I mean, he knows as much about this as any legislator we have in Ohio. The Democrat was John Patterson, whose term expired. He was term limited at the end of December, so he's no longer in the legislature. But they spent three years working with a group of um, school treasurers and superintendents to come up with a new formula. And so what they did, they tackled the adequacy problem, okay, and they came up with a methodology um, for figuring out what the base cost should be. They came up with um, some, you know, some of the other parameters, some of the things that we need to do, like to educate kids with disabilities. There, we have a weighting system that works for that. That needs to be updated. Um, we have a part of the formula which gives more money to districts which have um, economically disadvantaged students, that was very much underfunded and that also needs a study. So they, you know, they, they did, they, they increase their, their plan comes up with a base cost methodology. It comes up with a mechanism for providing the extra dollars you need to students that need extra dollars. Some of those things need some study and they've recommended that the studies be done. So, you know, they have a plan for getting at the adequacy issue. Okay. They also came up with a different way of computing the state and local share, and that's based on how much property wealth a district has, and it's also based on the income level of districts. And that's important, okay, because what we've learned over time is, you know, districts with more wealthy people are better able to leverage their property tax base because those people can afford higher taxes. And we have some districts where, you know, if you, if you have a power plant, um, that's a pretty highly valued piece of property, but you can have some districts where you've got high property wealth, but the income level of the people who live there is low, right? And so they look wealthy on paper, but the people who vote for taxes, the power plant doesn't vote for taxes, the people who live there do, 
right? And so they, if their median income is $30,000, they can only afford taxes of a certain level. The formula, the state and local share calculation in House Bill 1 takes into account both the local capacity to generate taxes and the ability to pay of the people who live there. And I think you need to do both those things to come up with an equitable state and local share. So, I mean, that that's their plan in the simplest terms I can describe it, right? They're getting at both equity and adequacy. It was passed as House Bill 305 in December of last year by the House by an overwhelming margin, but the Senate needed, in order for it to become law, the Senate needed to act on it by the end of the year and they chose not to. Where are we now with this? It's been reintroduced as House Bill 1. Um, Bob Cup is the Speaker of the House, so he has some sway, but the Senate sounds like it still might be that stumbling block. So. And they could be. So now we're in, so last year was a year where we were not going through the budget process. Now we're going through the budget process. We do this every two years. For those of us who work on the budget, we're glad it's only every two years, not every year, (laughs) right? So, um, but this is a budget year. And so, you know, we do a two-year budget, which will be for the 2022-23 years. And that needs to be passed by the end of this, this fiscal year, which is June 30th. So the governor introduces the budget on by February 1st, which the governor did. It then goes to the House of Representatives. They'll have it for a couple months, usually somewhere around Easter. It makes its way over to the Senate. They work on it for a couple months. And then inevitably, the Senate and the House have different versions of the budget. So that needs to go to conference committee in June so that they can reconcile and work out their difference so that the legislature can present one unified budget that they both the Senate and the House have approved. And then the governor will sign it and he can do some line items vetoes. So that's the budget process. So right now they've introduced House Bill 1. My expectation is since this is a budget year, House Bill 1 will find its way into the House version of the budget. When House Bill 305 was passed last year, there were, um, you know, there were cost estimates by the, you know, the the legislative budget office that said it was going to cost about $2 billion. For those of us that have been following this problem, that was not a big surprise. The Senate came up with some, um, is contending it's really going to be much more than that. I've looked at what they've um, put together to the, some of it is completely undecipherable. What I can follow is overstated. It's going to end up phasing it in was going to make it cost more than that. You know, you can't, we don't have $2 billion right now to fund the entire thing in the next two years. It's probably going to take five or six years to fund this. And, you know, because of inflation, it will end up costing a little bit more. It's not going to be three and a half or $4 billion like the Senate's contending. So, you know, the, I'm expecting that the House will put, you know, the Cup Patterson Fair School funding plan into the budget. And they were helped because the Legislative Budget Office revenue estimates were several hundred million dollars a year higher than the revenue estimates that the governor's budget office used in their budget. So it looks to me like the House is going to have some extra money to play around with. If this is what they choose to do, I think that they'll be able to implement their their plan. And, you know, I have not heard exactly what they're planning to do. I don't know if they're thinking of making any changes or not. But, you know, from the outside to me, it looks like it's it's feasible for the House to put this in. We've now heard rumors that the Senate has their own school funding plan that nobody knows anything about. And, you know, if that's true, we 
you know, the sooner we can know about that, the better. We have no idea what they're thinking, how it tackles the equity issue and the adequacy issue, what it looks like, what it's based on, how much it costs. Um, you know, the one thing that a lot of people do know about the Senate president, Matt Huffman, um, is that he has spent a lot of time over the last seven or eight years expanding Ohio's voucher programs. So it's clear that that's a priority for him, what his commitment is to um, providing funding for public schools, nobody knows. That's not really been something he's talked about very much. So, you know, what I'm expecting to see is that the House puts the fair school funding plan into the budget with some sort of a phase in provision where there's X amount of money put in in FY22, then there's more money put in in FY23 and a plan for how you'll, you know, get it funded, you know, three or four more years out. And then it will be the ball will be in the Senate's court. And right now, that's a guessing game. Nobody has any idea what the Senate is going to do. Well, it's certainly something we will keep an eye on. Obviously, this is such an important issue for Ohio students, for Ohio's educators, Ohio's communities. Dr. Fleeter, thank you so, so much for helping walk us through it and helping us understand what's at stake here. My pleasure. Thank you very much. For the latest on this and other issues affecting Ohio schools, make sure you subscribe to the Education Matters podcast so you don't miss an episode. You can also connect with the Ohio Education Association on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Our handle is at OhioEA. Thank you again for joining us. Until next time, stay well.